Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And I'm absolutely delighted tonight to be introducing David Cronenberg, who is our guest curator for the Warhol Supernova show upstairs. How many of you have actually seen the show already? Okay, I hope you'll all after this, you'll all be running up there next week, I'm sure. Before we start, I would like to thank the lead sponsor of our exhibition, RBC Dexia Investor Services, who sponsored with generous assistance from Marla and Larry Wasser. And we couldn't do these exhibitions without these people, so thank you. And here's the introduction for David, who I think for many of you, judging by the expressions on faces when we walked in, needs very little introduction. Director David Cronenberg's reputation as an authentic auteur has been firmly established by his uniquely personal body of work, which includes Shivers, Rabid, Fast Company, The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, The Fly, Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch, Crash, Existence, The Dead Zone, M Butterfly, Spider, and most recently, A History of Violence, which has received tremendous critical appraise and recognition around the world. He has received an honorary Doctor of Law degree from the University of Toronto, which he received in June 2001, and in January 2003, appointment as an officer to the Order of Canada. He has invested Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters, bestowed by France in 1990, and upgraded in 1997 to Officer of the Order of Arts and Letters. In 1999, he presided over the jury at the Cannes Film Festival. So I think we're in for a delightful evening. David will speak for a while, and then we will have a period of question and answer. David Cronenberg. Thank you. I prefer the handheld mic because then I can pretend I'm Mick Jagger. I'll do my best to answer any questions you have. So, uh, thank, you, thank you very much. Uh, you may well know that uh, Theravada Buddhist monks have traditionally meditated on decaying corpses in order to gain some deeper insight into the nature of existence and suffering and so forth. And your own films might also be regarded as uh, meditations on the grotesque and macabre aspects of life. And in this, and in the, and you've shown us uh, also this uh, somewhat uh, grotesque and macabre element of uh, Warhol's paintings. And yet uh, you, you kept making the point from time to time that uh, he regarded himself really as a sort of dispassionate uh, voyeur and, uh, and a sort of dispassionate recorder of these uh, conjunctions of celebrity and death and so forth. Do you think he's really being uh, disingenuous when he says this? Do you think there's some sort of deeper purpose to this, uh, to this uh, statement he was sort of making? Well, I, I, think, I think as with always with Andy, there's a kind of... Um I don't think it's disingenuous. I think it's just, it's a, it's a kind of a double game that he's playing because even the quote that we have on the walls where he says, um, if you want to know what, anything about Andy Warhol, just look at me, just look at the surface of my paintings and my films, and that's it. That's all there is. Except when you look at the surface, they're really complex. So he could be telling the truth, but it's not an obvious truth. I think that he really... Uh, I think he really did know what he was doing. I think he really kn knew what buttons he was pushing in himself and everyone else. And of course, um, I mean, there, he, 
as with any great artist, he connected what was a personal tendency, uh, understanding, and made it become a kind of universal uh, epiphany. That is to say, all recording of anything is voyeuristic. It's, and it's voyeuristic on both ends of the recording, whether somebody knows that they're being recorded or not. There's a sort of a tacit understanding that there's a distance being created. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a strange, is it a, is it a distancing to avoid emotion and meaning, or is it a distancing to avoid pain? Is it legitimate? Is it not legitimate? Do we not have to do that to a certain extent in order to survive, in order to continue to exist? All of those things, I think, are going on uh, in life, but also in Andy, and in the, in the kind of media saturation that he so wonderfully um, anticipated, I think really before anyone else, I think he really got it right away and played with it, and, and then became part of it. I mean, he had his own television show. It wasn't very good. He started Interview Magazine, which is still going. Um, he, he, he made a virtue out of his own flaws, and that I think any great artist does that. I notice in your treatment of the subject as a whole, there's a... You have to hold it up to your mouth. You have to be Mick Jagger. I think okay. Mick Jagger. <laughs> have a... Uh, there's a very broad and uh, clever sense of humor in just about everything you have said in your treatment of the subject. And I'm wondering whether that was present at all in Warhol's work. It's not that I, I didn't detect it, but maybe it's there and you've seen it. What do you think? Humor, humor you mean, in his work? Yes, humor, humor. Oh, I think, well, I think, I mean, I think he had a fantastic sense of humor. It was a very sort of, shall I say, deadpan sense of humor. Uh, he's very witty. He's really very witty, and and I think, um, of course, one of the one of the things about pop art that distinguished it from what had become before was that it didn't take itself too seriously. That it could be playful. I mean, in all art, in every act of artistic endeavor, you, there's play. You have to remember, no matter how seriously you took yourself, even if you're Jackson Pollock, you you. Play is, is a huge part of it. You're like children playing. Anybody who has children or grandchildren, you can see the artistic process right there. You can't avoid it. I think of it, when I, when I ask actors to be in my films, I'm thinking that I'm inviting them to play in my sandbox. You know, I mean, you are, after all, you're putting on funny hats and a mustache and you're pretending to be people you're not. Um, despite the money that's involved and the ego and everything else, uh, you can't lose sense of that. You can't lose sight of that sense of play. So I think, um, but of course, it's buried deeper in some artists than in others. I think Andy, with Andy, was really quite upfront. He's very playful, and a lot of the stuff he did is is very light. You know, in fact, I mean, one of the things that this show is not focused deliberately to do, but I think does do just by the nature of, it, of the years that we're dealing with, is to correct the understanding of Andy as being too flippant, too playful, too light, you know, too funny. But it's still all there. Do you know if there was ever any connection between Warhol and McLuhan? Warhol and McLuhan? Well, I think, I think of course, uh, I don't know of a direct connection, but uh, uh, certainly what McLuhan wrote in Understanding Media, um, uh, in particular, covers a lot of what Andy was doing. I mean, I think, I think McLuhan certainly understood Warhol and understood pop art. 
And uh, I don't know that Andy ever, I don't know, I have no idea whether he really, if he ever read that. I mean, he didn't read, he said, he liked to say that he doesn't re read a lot. I don't know if he did. But certainly, McLuhan's influence was hugely strong in New York at the time to the extent that McLuhan actually appears in a, in a Woody Allen movie. Um, uh, uh, so uh, um, there's a real interplay between them. And I think you, if you looked at Andy's work and were reading McLuhan, I think you would get some additional wonderful insights, I'm sure of it. You said his movies were five hours long, eight hours long. Was, how did the re uh, audience respond to that? Did they, were they expected to sit through it? And was he more interested in watching people's reaction to it? Well, he wouldn't sit there, so he wouldn't see a reaction. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think certainly some of his films did get screenings in New York. There were art theaters that would show it. And then there was uh, the film co-op, um, Jonas Mikas' uh, New York film co-op, which, um, which in fact I and some other filmmakers here tried to emulate in the 60s. We started the Toronto film co-op. The whole idea was underground films. I mean, that was despite Andy's love of Hollywood. I, I had a very similar experience in, in a very different way. That is to say, Hollywood filmmaking or even European art filmmaking was very distant and inaccessible. But it was the 60s, and the 60s said, you know, do your own thing. You don't have to join a union. You don't have to go to film school. You don't have to play the Hollywood game and claw your way to the top. Just grab a camera and make a movie. Just do, do it with your friends. Just go do it. And that was what Jonas Mikas's film co-op uh, promoted, uh, not in a flippant kind of way, but the idea that you could be an underground filmmaker. That was what we, it, it, it isn't exactly what we call independent filmmaking now. It was its own thing, underground filmmaking. Um, we had uh, a place in Toronto here called CineCity, at which we had the Cinethon. It was 24 hours nonstop of movies that were all mostly New York underground. We had Kenneth Anger come up and, and M. Schwiller and the Kuchar brothers and all, uh, Stan Brackage. These were people who were, once again, making their alternative to Hollywood. Um, film as art that you could access through the co-op. Uh, so that you could you, you could get it to show at a theater or at a, in a film class or just as we did here in Toronto in the 60s on Markham Street, put up a sheet. I remember doing that one summer. You put up a sheet and project, it, project onto that sheet at night and people would just sat on the sidewalk and on the lawns and watched. So it was kind of a free version of film that didn't involve money so much and it was you had access to it. And of course, for an artist, that was very exciting because really having access was the ultimate excitement. And Andy was a, a huge part of that for me as well as the other New York underground filmmakers. Um, so he did get formal screenings. But at the same time, I don't really think that it was... You were meant to sit there for eight hours and 20 minutes and watch Empire. Certainly there are people who will tell you, you must. Um, <laughs> Um, and I can tell you a funny story about that one. But, um, but imagine, I mean, at the factory, Andy would have his films projected sometimes on the walls while he was painting and people were doing things and he was always 
many things going on, uh, a multitasker before we knew the word. He worked very hard. He was always doing something. So it was almost like having music on while you work. You know, it's not, you're not paying strict attention to it, but it's there. You happen to glimpse something. You look at it. We had that experience when we were doing the installation. You know, we, we did the films first, and, and then we started to place the paintings uh, and so the films were constantly playing, and it was exactly like a, a workman having music playing. So I think that's much more in line with the, pro the, uh, the best and most, you know, practical possible way to experience the films. Although I do think that if they were ever sold as a package on DVD, it would be a bestseller. I think it's a, I, I don't, you know, there are obviously copyright and other issues, but that would be great because you could just have it playing at home all the time, you know, and it would work great. <laughs> I do have, I, do, I just wanted to say that um, Stan Brackage, who was a very hardcore, I think he just died recently, didn't he? Just very hardcore art, art, art film maker, which worked in Super 8 and 16 millimeter and ultimately in video, but very, very obscure, difficult, you know, not very well known except in his own circle. Um, Andy w really knew everything that was going on in New York. He knew the underground. He knew the music. He did after he produced uh, he produced the Velvet Underground's first album. I mean, he was a, so he he was into everything, and um, he knew what was going on with the underground filmmakers at uh, the co-op. And at one point, he once he had made a few films. Jonas Mikas told Stan Brackage he must see this work of Andy Warhol's. So he watched about 16 hours of Andy's stuff. And he came out and he said, this is trash. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is ludicrous. It's nothing. I mean, it's absolutely nothing. It's bullshit. And then Mika said, did you watch it at 24 frames a second? And he said, yeah. He said, Stan, I want you to go back <laughs> and watch it at 16 frames, which, of course, makes it longer. Because if you've only seen it at 24, you haven't really seen it. Being the hardcore guy that he was, he went back and he sat there for, you know, 20 hours. Came out, he said, he's a genius. <laughs> True story. Just wanted to um, ask a question. I hope I articulate this well. But um, uh, notice with his reflections on death, um, he's sort of looking at um, individual, like the model she dies. The electric chair, it's famous because of who died in it, um, um, and also the, 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 the work with, with um, Kennedy and, and so on. But I'm just wondering, did he, I mean, there was a Vietnam War, I mean, the death machine of the Vietnam War, did he do any work with regards to that as death? Any reflection on the sort of anonymous death? It sort of seems the death of celebrity that he's really fascinated with rather than the subject of death, let's put it that way. Um, well, yeah. Well, the, of course, the race riot paintings were involved people who were not celebrities, and, and we've seen that, as I say, he was very de democratic in terms of death and celebrity, as nature is as well. But um, uh, I, don't, I, I, I myself don't know that he, as I say, he would have said that he's, not, he's totally apolitical. So I, I, I myself don't know of any works that specifically addressed Vietnam. After all, um, at the time, the the media, you know, the, the media played an interesting game with Vietnam, and it was there was a lot of suppression of imagery. I mean, it's it's kind of spooky the things that we, you know, are are, are experiencing right now, uh, in terms of foreign wars and so on. But um, uh, there was a real attempt to control 
that, and I think that what was happening right up front in Andy's face, I mean, Andy was, you know, it was what was right in front of you. And maybe Vietnam was just too far away, you know, for him to comprehend or to connect with. Uh, and also, as I say, I mean, he was completely, it's not like he did investigative photojournalism or anything. He wasn't digging. It's what was ever right, what, whatever was right there in front of him. So um, I, I don't think you can, well, you, you weren't trying to fault him for that. I just don't think, uh, I, somebody will, can probably tell me, you know, that I'm wrong. But I, I myself have not come across anything that directly related to the, Vietnam. I mean, it's much later, and it's Blue Movie, and it's Viva and Louis Waldron have this long conversation before they fuck in Blue Movie about Vietnam. I mean, it's one of the big things. So it's this weird time capsule movie, but it's much later. It's 68. Right. So there you have it. The answer is yes, much later when it was actually happening. So there you go. I was just wondering in, um, in how you've described yourself before as a card-carrying existentialist, and you've also described Warhol as being an existentialist in some of his work, and you know how you were talking about how him, he commodified himself. And in that way, I was just wondering how you, in today's film market and in how your films have changed throughout the years, how you feel about commodifying yourself for the market in that way. Well, um, I really, I'm not going to, I'd rather not talk about myself much and my own films, but um, I, I do think that, um, uh, and when I say that, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't call Andy himself an existentialist. Um, he was a secret Catholic. Um, it's kind of interesting that in that time he was very obviously, as I say, voyeuristic, gay, and wore wigs. But his secret was Catholicism. You know, he kept that secret, and people like Dennis Hopper said they had no idea till after he was dead that he had gone to mass just about every Sunday and was was a practicing Catholic. So, uh, so I'm not sure that I would call him an existentialist. I'm saying that for me, he's an existential hero because he created himself. I mean, he created Andy Warhol out of Andrew Warhol um, by force of will. Um, he saw what he wanted to become, and he did as much as he possibly could to become that. And so that, that's really what I meant by that. Um, certainly anybody who's in the film business then or now who, who has, is serious in any way about his art has a very strange, difficult game to play in balancing act because um, there's a lot of money involved in making a movie these days, a commercial movie anyway. Uh, on the other hand, people have access to the most amazing technology. Uh, Andy would have been right there, you know. I mean, he would have been so into the internet and everything else. He would have had a great website. Maybe he would have started his own World Wide Web. I'm not sure. But um, uh, once again, it's a strange schizophrenia, you know. There's incredible access to the technology that allows you to make uh, movie. I mean, the reason that Andy's first films were silent is because sound was very difficult to do. I, I ran into the same thing myself. Um, you didn't have what you have now, which is a camera with a built-in mic, and it records not bad sound. In fact, it, even a small camcorder records wonder, can record wonderful digital sound. In those days, you needed a separate tape recorder and a sound recordist, and the editing was complex. And Andy's solution was just to ignore sound for a, for a while until he maybe came to terms with it 
quite a bit later, and I did the same thing, you know. So, um, but um, uh, yeah, the, the 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 question of commodification, and then after you do a movie, you spend a year promoting the film, and at which time you're not really. I've had to think of the promotion of a film. I mean, I spent nine months promoting a history of violence, not making another movie, but pr literally promoting it in many, many countries. Um, if you don't think of that as part of the process of making the film, then, then you'll go crazy because you're really wasting your time, actually, especially if the movie happens to tank, then it really feels like you've wasted your time. So anyway, that's just the tip of another iceberg that we won't get into. But yeah, it's a, uh, the, the questions that Andy raises and was at the center of, he had a wonderful solution, which is to say, I love business and commerce. He said, um, business is the best art and art is the best business. You know, I want to do business art. He, he just jumped right into it. I mean, it was shocked and horrified, all his artist friends, but it was a wonderful way of just coming to terms with that, saying, no, I want to be a commodity. I want my work to be commodified and mass-produced. I want everybody to own it, and I want it to not be important. I want it to be disposable. I want me to be disposable. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of a head-on attack, you know? And um, for him, it worked, and what he was doing, it worked. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting point. I'm not sure this is a question. Um, over the years, when I've looked at his art, I've always felt a coolness and kind of detachment, which is part of what we've talked about or have listened to. But uh, after looking at the show today and listening to the tape, I came out uh, recognizing that I was filled with um, emotions that I felt about Francis Bacon or Egon Schiele's paintings. And, um, I guess I want to thank you for that because it's really opened up something inside of me and it's uh, it changed the whole perspective for me. So just a, a thank you more than a question. Well, thank you. That's a wonderful compliment. Um, it's, it's really kind of interesting to note that there's no sex in the paintings, no overt sex in the painting. It's all in the film. Another reason why we felt that uh, and and the and the sort of the death aspect, the mortality aspect, the desperation of the in the sexuality as well. Um, uh, if you if you just look at the paintings of that are there, and you don't have the film, you're really you're just getting half the picture, half the story, or even less. They really do reflect on each other, and I'm I have a feeling that some of what you're saying comes from that. You know, the juxtaposition of of the two. I think his stuff is full of emotion. Um, there are many wonderful artists who have always been aloof. Henry James, you know, being, been reticent, distant. But you, can, you can't become a great artist without addressing emotion in some way. You have to find your own approach. It's got to be there. Just to follow your um, arguments you cited earlier on, saying that Andy Warhol is really a creation of Andy Warholer. Would it be fair to say at the end of the day we don't know the first thing about Andy Warholer because all we know on public record is really the persona, Andy Warhol? Well, um, there is a lot of documentation. I mean, Andy did have a family. He had brothers and I think sisters. Um, he had a family that, that survived him, not children, but he had, he had family. 
And he had a mother who lived with him until she died. I mean, she, she came at one point after he had moved to New York, she decided she didn't want to live in Pittsburgh anymore. She came to New York and ended up living in his basement for, you know, 30 years, literally. Uh, not because he put her in the basement, she liked it there. You know? and, so, and so he had his mother with him, you know. So when he went home, he was still Andrew Warhol, you know. I mean, he's still... It's um, and it's it's documented well enough in some ways that part of him you know so at least we get a sense of it. Uh, I don't think he ever tried to destroy that you know he didn't try to destroy it he wasn't playing he wasn't playing that kind of game where he tries to destroy obliterate his past. I think he always felt it there, and it was undoubtedly necessary for him as as was the Catholicism which would have been the sort of Slovakian Pittsburgh background uh, from his mother who was also religious. So that was always there, you know. He didn't, he didn't destroy it. And, and in other words, it, he was acting. I mean, he was acting Andy Warhol, even as he was really Andy Warhol at the same time, you know what I mean? Any last questions? To, okay. Uh, just a quick question. There seems to be a theme of repetition in most of Andy's work, and you expressed some of that repetition is sort of the uh, moving to death. But I notice in others, for instance, the picture of Jackie. There are the four pictures of Jackie by four, but there was one frame that was just askew. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah. Well, I think Andy, uh, amongst the many wonderful things that he said was, you know, some people say that they want to see, you know, they've enjoyed something, so they want to see it again or experience it again, but they really want it to be slightly different. But he said, but when, for me, I really want it to be exactly the same the next time I experience it. And it comes once again with, I think, what I've been saying is that the, the, the idea that repetition, does it really drain things of emotion? He said that it did. I've, I've mentioned that quote, you know, that... The more you see an image, the more you see something, the less and less meaning it has, less and less emotion, and the better and better you feel. So there is still an emotional payoff for the lack of emotion. That's a typical Andy kind of paradoxical thing to say. Um, you know, he was an artist. He did say he loved the silkscreen process because accidents happened, and he loved to incorporate those accidents. Um, he, he, he said, you know, I, the squeegee would run out or it would slip over the edge of the frame that he wanted. And, and, and then he said, then I get accused of being artsy, you know, he said. Um, so th who knows why that one frame of Jackie is crooked? Did he do it on purpose? Was it an accident? Did he, you know, it's, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock suggested and promoted himself as being the master of control, you know, that he would plan every shot in his movies, everything. He would do it in his head, he would make storyboards, and then when he was on the set, he called it running it through the machine. You know, he'd only say action and cut. Well, that, if you believe that, and it, he was lying completely, by the way, if you believe that, that cuts out the creative contribution of everybody else in the movie, very convenient. Uh, Orson Welles, on the other hand, who was strangely more honest, said, a director is someone who presides over a series of accidents. And I think that's much more true. So, um, once again, Andy is letting 
the found art tell him what to do, you know? It's, it's, he understands repetition, but he also knows that it's not true repetition, that, that every, every repeated image is not exactly the same. And, and there's, there's a whole thing we could, you know, we could endlessly discuss, and that's perfect, endlessly discuss about time and, and Warhol, you know, about his sense of time and temporality and, and eternity and, 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 and stopping time and so on. Um, but we won't. We won't get into that because we don't have forever. Okay, well, let, can we have one last question from the back? And then I think we should yeah, wrap up. Uh, I just wanted to say that a, that a few years ago, we were at the uh, Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, and we took our four-year-old granddaughter with us, and she went crazy in this room with these pillows, these gold pillows, Zephyrus pillows going. So we picked up a book there written by Andy's nephew, James Warhol. It was called Uncle Andy's, and that gives a tremendous take on uh, Andy Warhol's personal family life and how an eight-year-old saw his uncle as, as an artist, this eight-year-old with his uh, brothers and father went to the uh, factory in, in, in uh, New York uh, many times, and this book relates his experiences at that factory. And as a young kid, he talks about uh, his, his famous uncle going away to these parties and coming back the next day and telling him what uh, uh, famous people he met and that sort of thing. But this, this book also, I, I noticed that you do have a copy of it in the gift store here. And it gives a pretty good take of how a child sees uh, Andy Warhol, where they do not see death and sex and do not understand any of those things. Right. Well, this is, this is for this gentleman over here. You have to buy that book now. <laughs> um, because there, there you have it. Well, um, I, I just want to say that um, uh, someone that I know went to see uh, the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, and she said that when she came out of it, she felt lighthearted and exhilarated and, and playful. And then she came to our show and she felt really depressed and like dragged out and hopeless. I said, that's great. Thank you. David. I'd like to thank you so much. Number one, it's been a real experience having you in the building, and I think the exhibition upstairs is beautifully curated. And how interesting it is to have somebody who's not an art historian curating an exhibition. I mean, I often feel here that we're a visual arts building, but to have the arts mixed in here is so healthy, to be able to see the art of a period through all the art media is just excellent. I want to say, I've listened to the audio tape twice. We have a CD for sale. And I'm not just doing this to plug the gift store CD for sale. It's a real bargain. I think it's $9.99 or something like that. And if most of you are members, then it's really cheap. I've listened to it twice, and I imagine I'm going to be listen to, listening to it often because it feels very nuanced to me, and it's got all the voices. You've given me a different way of looking at Warhol, with whom I had trouble before. And, and you showed me my view of him was actually, I am ashamed to say, quite shallow. And you've given me a different way of looking at him. Now, if you could make me see Elvis in a better light, that would be... <laughs> I think that may be a hopeless cause. I do want to say... Let me sing yes. Flaming Star for you, okay? <laughs> I want to say also that we have 
a related piece of art, Tino Segal is a, has created a performance piece which will be in the galleries upstairs starting tomorrow and it'll be every day that the gallery is open. And it'll be various actors and actresses performing famous kisses from art. It seems very related to this exhibition to me. And once you have seen our exhibition here too, there is an exhibition in Oakville Galleries curated by Imani Fleming, which is, I've got to get the name right, the, the collection of uh, Salah Bashir. And it's art that goes from 57 to 87. So it's a completely different kind of exhibition, but I think it'd be very interesting to have experienced this one and then take the eyes that you have from this out to Oakville Galleries and see that. So thank you very much, David. Thank you. Thank you very much.